0: You're listening to Podcasts with Park Rangers, a show where we explore the importance of our national parks and historic sites with those who live and work in them every day. We'll learn about history, science, and the beauty of nature from a unique perspective. I'm your host, Lucas VK. Today we interview Ranger Julie Fonseca de Borges, Chief of Interpretation at Klondike Gold Rush National Historical Park.
1: I find that there's lots of opportunities because Seattle built itself as a gateway to the gold fields. Well, Seattle is also the gateway to other national park sites and now open recreation areas and other public histories. How can we serve as that gateway for today's communities? I'm excited to keep going on it.
0: Stay tuned. We'll talk to Julie as we discover how the 1897 gold rush made Seattle the city it is today. This podcast is brought to you by our Patreon community. All new patrons receive a personalized postcard from one of the national parks featured on our show. If you'd like to find out more, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward camper. That's virtual K-A-M-P-E-R. When many people hear about the gold rush, They think of the California Gold Rush of 1849, when 300,000 people traveled from across the continent in search of riches. However, this wasn't the only gold rush responsible for populating the West Coast. In August 1896, three men find gold in a tributary of Canada's Klondike River. Local prospectors stake their claims along the river throughout the winter, and in June 1897, hop a ship to seattle to spread the news of their discovery the steamship named portland arrives in july with 68 men carrying what newspapers describe as a ton of gold the seattle post intelligencers headlines exclaim gold 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 68 rich men on the steamer portland stacks of yellow metal some have five thousand dollars many have more and a few bring out $100,000 each. And as news of gold spreads across America, people flood into Seattle. The city serves as a stepping off point where people buy supplies and board a ship to embark on their journey to the Klondike in search of opportunity and riches. And because of the 1897 gold rush, Seattle nearly doubled in size within the span of a decade. When that many people flood a city, it's bound to change. So, how did the Klondike Gold Rush change Seattle? And, did anyone ever truly strike it rich? To learn more, we sit down with Ranger Julie Fonseca de Borges.
1: Welcome to Klondike Gold Rush National Historical Park, Seattle Unit. My name is Julie Fonseca de Borges. I am the Chief of Interpretation for Seattle Area National Park Sites, which includes Klondike.
0: Ranger Julie has worked with the Park Service almost 13 years, and specifically at Klondike Gold Rush National Historical Park's Seattle unit, for four years. However, Julie's involvement in the Park Service began in a different way than it does for most park rangers.
1: So my background's a little bit different than most park ranger people, I believe. So my background is in journalism, but it's also very much rooted in museum education, specifically art education. I was working in El Paso, Texas at the local art museum, very much in outreach, work, and engagement, developing curriculum, connecting with teachers, providing teacher workshops, and using the arts, plural, to teach about basic education things, like courses, math, science, English, social studies, and really employing different artists' stories, different artworks to talk about those very core things to the classroom.
0: The local National Park Unit in El Paso, Texas, had a need for Julie's unique skill set, which she had cultivated at the art museum.
1: So the local National Park Service site, which is in El Paso, Texas, um, that site is called Chumisab National Memorial. They use the arts to talk about their story. And it's actually a pretty fascinating piece of history for the United States. I mean, I feel like all National Park Service sites tell a really significant part of the story, but this one is super cool. So they were established in the 1970s to talk about a treaty that happened between the United States and Mexico in 1967.
0: Chamisal National Memorial celebrates the peaceful resolution of a 100-year border dispute between the U.S. and Mexico along the Rio Grande. And because of the park's focus on the arts, Julie found a great place to begin her park service career.
1: So in celebration of it, and in honor of this diplomatic act, the first time in modern history that land had been peacefully exchanged between the United States and any country, any country really, they decided to celebrate it through the arts and talk about culture and talk about how the arts can help communicate different stories and help us learn about each other. So it's a diplomacy park, and it employs the arts, fine art, visual art, concerts, music, dance, to celebrate both cultures,
0: and that was that was your thing. That's where you came in to, yep. to that, okay.
1: That's how I became a Park Service ranger, because I used my arts background and education experience to help that park develop a connection to the education community using the arts to tell its story. Very cool. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: It's an important site. It's a great site.
0: So let's talk a little more about the site that we're at here. We're at. Klondike Gold Rush National Historic Park, which is actually not just this site that we're at. It's the first one where we've we've featured on the show that actually has kind of a sister unit or a sister site. This one is here in Seattle. We're on the third floor of a very historic building, which we'll get into more. But there's also part that's in Alaska. So can you talk about why that is, why there's this one and a a sister site without maybe discussing all of the story because it's a huge story, right? Right.
1: So we're actually part of an international historical park. There are two sites managed by the National Park Service here in Seattle where the southernmost part and then our sister site is in Skagway, Alaska. Right. So most folks, um, we estimate that 100,000 people went started out for the Klondike Gold Rush. Of those 100,000s, 70,000 came through Seattle. Of those 70,000, the majority of them took a boat up to either Skagway or Daid, Alaska. Okay, yeah. And so they're essentially, when we talk about the story of Skagway and the Alaskan Park, I always thought of Daid and Skagway being really far apart. Mm. (laughs) Like miles and hours apart, but in driving it today they're about 30 minutes apart, maybe.
0: Oh really? Okay. Yeah,
1: so they're that close. So it's essentially the same site. So we talk about what, the, what we, the story that we tell here in Seattle, especially in our exhibit spaces, is, is the experience that the majority of people went through. About 70% yeah. of those, of those 100,000, the majority of them came through Seattle, and the majority of those people went on boat to Skagway or Dye. Right, okay. And then they would continue on to Dawson City and up the trail to get to the gold fields. So we have two sites that we preserve as part of the National Park Service, but there are three sites in Parks Canada that tell uh, okay. the other story of the Klondike Gold Rush, what it was like actually be on the gold fields.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so us here in Seattle and our Skagway sister park, we talk, we talk about the story of transportation, of what it took to get up to the gold fields, what right. it took to get up into the Alaskan Territory. Which, t- did not ask t- to the Canadians' lands.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which is a story of multiple modes of travel, not just, you say a lot of them took the, the boats, mm-hmm. that route. But there was a land route as well, which we'll <laughs> probably get into a little more, as, <laughs> as I say. Yeah. So this site itself is unique because it kind of tells two stories, that of the Gold Rush and also of Seattle. So maybe mid-1800s is when the first Euro-Americans begin to settle here. Uh, What would this area be like around then? What drew people to this Seattle area around then?
1: That is a big question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
1: I mean, when we think about settlements and where people choose to live, it's going to be about climate. It's going to be about access to resources, both for food and for livelihood, Mm -hmm. um, shelter, clothing, whatnot. And we talk about opportunities, like what kind of opportunities are there available? So Seattle was a pretty great town. This was the home of the Coast Salish people, and there's many different groups within that larger terminology. Mm-hmm. And we are in Pioneer Square, but at the time that the first-year Americans came over, we would have been sitting in tidal flats. Like, this is not solid ground. This is oh, okay. all ground for the majority of Pioneer Square. It's all been built environment. So... Seattle in the geography of the Pacific Northwest in this area is very much hilly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's very much wood, windy, foresty,
2: right.
1: rains a lot of the year, <laughs> lots of great access to seafood and fish and the sound, easy transportation in many respects because we have lakes and, and rivers that are more mild than the ocean and we're protected by some of the outlying islands Yeah. In, in the sound. So it's it's a nice place to be. So it draws a lot of people. But really, you, want, you know, it's, it's such a big story. I kind of just want to jump into the Seattle story.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've we've talked a little bit prior to sitting down on record here about Seattle and some of its growing pains and the way they have dramatically kind of reshaped the area. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean... Seattle is a place that was home to the Coast Salish people for generations.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then we had um, a group, the Denny Party, come through Seattle, first landed in West Seattle and decided that it was too cold and too harsh of a climate. So they wanted some place that was a little bit more protected, mm-hmm. a little more safe. <laughs> and so they moved into what is now Pioneer Square at the time was called the little crossing over space because it was a place that was protected. There was long houses here. People lived here for certain times of the year, for a certain part of the year.
2: Okay. And then kind they seasonally would go, seasonally Seasonally, yeah.
1: yeah. And they would move to other places or they would trade with people who lived lakeside or they would trade with people who were further up the coast or used river routes to get to and from places.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so this was an ideal place to have an establishment for the Euro-Americans who came here first, which is the Denny Party but it was also a place that was very hilly and not very easy to access the lakes because you had to go up hills <laughs> down mm-hmm. hills on pretty steep and rocky trails. Yeah, And so they just started by kind of filling in the tide flats to create more land to make it easier to build buildings, easier to build communities that were permanent. So the Coast Salish people were displaced at the time, but at first it It's it's such a complex story because the folks who lived here first, the Coast Salish folks, they had this attitude that everybody was a friend. Like the more trading partners you had, the better off you were because you had better resources. You had different ideas. and They welcomed everybody. Building those
0: connections. Building those connections.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it was very much a welcoming, open
0: Mm -hmm. group of
1: people. And then you have this new group of settlers, and they say, oh, new friends or new people to trade with. So Mm -hmm. they helped establish them here. And then go down a little bit further in history, and the very same people who helped the Denny Party settle and survive their first winters here were forced out of the city. Mm -hmm. They weren't allowed to be in their ancestral homes anymore because Seattle wanted to be known as a modern city. And to be a modern city, you couldn't have Native American indigenous people living in the city.
0: Wow, okay.
2: So
1: it's, it's a harsh reality and it's a harsh part of Seattle's history. Yeah. And so that's the way it was for a number of years, for many years. And I want to say back in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, there was a resurgence of what is our history? How do we reclaim our past? For a long time, people felt like Native American groups didn't exist they were an extinguished people mm. and that's not the case there are thriving cultures people, there are thriving groups they are still present and very much a part of our everyday lives sure so that's the history of the Native American people on our area and the city of Seattle it's named for chief Seattle who was chief Seattle okay so
0: wow yeah didn't realize it goes to the very name of the place mm-hmm but it makes sense yeah Yeah, the names are carried by the people so speaking to kind of those growing pains and kind of how it was reshaped one thing that really reshaped the area which we've also talked about were uh, pretty extensive fires
1: yeah so um, seattle was very much a western town in many respects
2: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Quickly built up, quickly populated by people who were trying to create a new name for themselves, create a new life for themselves, reinvent themselves. Mm -hmm. So you had an influx of people from the East and the Midwest coming to Seattle to get a new life, essentially. And with the influx of people, there was a need to build infrastructure, to have buildings to house everybody, to have the businesses, to supply the people with goods and services. Mm -hmm. So Seattle, there was abundance of wood, natural material. So Seattle was built with using wooden fabric or wooden materials. So you had storefronts, you had businesses, you had people's homes, you had public buildings, and they were all wood. You did have some brick in between because Seattle did have a series of fire. Whenever you get a large concentration of people in a small place, there's, you get... You're really close to people. And so that's going to create conflict sometimes. And it's mm, just going to okay. create the right, the right recipe and the right environment for accidents to happen. So Seattle had a repeated fires. But the Great Fire happened in 1889. And that started off from a glue factory. <laughs> oh. And glue knocked over and started a really hot fire. And it burned down the glue shop. It burned down the next building. And because it happened in Seattle where all the wooden buildings were really close to each other,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the fire just progressed, progressed, progressed. So it wasn't just that the fire was happening and all the buildings were, were wooden. It also happened that the tide was out. So it was an easy access to get water from the sound to extinguish the fire. Oh. At the time, Seattle's fire department was a volunteer fire department. So there wasn't a professionalized fire department in the city, so they had to rally all the volunteers to try to put the fire out. The plumbing for Seattle was also made out of wood. Oh really? And it wasn't working properly. So it burnt and there was it was broken. It would just created another obstacle to try to beat the fire. But the fire was so slow moving that no one was injured. There's no reports of anybody being injured or killed in the fire, which is awesome yeah but the entire downtown area was decimated Still
0: did some serious damage mm-hmm.
2: Wow.
1: there are images of the aftermath of the fire and all you see are walls of brick buildings mm-hmm. up nothing else all the wooden structures were gone but the city leaders didn't let that stop them they said seattle will rise from the fires like a phoenix and we will rebuild the city and we will rebuild it better than before As I mentioned, Seattle is a city of hills, and they said, what we really need is more land closer to the sound, where we can bring ships in and out and create more of an elbow room. So we are gonna rebuild the city better. Uh, when you rebuild your buildings, know that the second floor is going to become street level and your first floor is going to become basement level uh-huh. because what they were doing is pulling down the hills from the east side and north of Seattle and using all of that dirt to fill in this tidal salt flats in the Pioneer Square area. So they removed the hills, filled it in the sound, created more land, and built buildings made out of bricks to be more fire retardant. Right. So.
0: But they were building a lot of these buildings as the progress was being made Mm -hmm. to fill it in. Had you been here in
1: 1892, 1891, you would be in this really strange environment where the ground level was very basic to most of the buildings that you were surrounded by. And all the second floor buildings had these really ornate arches. They had pretty cool decorations. They had stairwells that were pretty grand.
0: Because they knew that would be the first floor. So the, the plain current first floor was going to just be basement.
1: Right. So there wasn't a lot of thought or energy or money spent into creating two different levels of grand entrances. Mm-hmm. And depending on what part of the city you were in, there was already that grand entrance. The, the street-level floor had already been built up to the second-level floor. Right. But there were pits that were open that still led to the corridors of, between the buildings. So we had a network of alleyways that connected the buildings on the basement level and the storage-level area. But they were open, so you had to be really careful or you could fall into the pits and there's these <laughs> stories of women who were doing shopping that they had to climb these really steep ladders to get down to the basement level entrance because the main entrance was blocked off for whatever reason.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. Huh.
1: And Seattle at the time in Pioneer Square was considered the red zone or the red district or the red light district. depending on where you're from, that's the way it was described. Yeah,
0: a lot of crazy carousing and... Yeah.
1: (laughs) And there were stories in the newspaper that talked about some people, so-and-so fell down off of the, fell down into the pit, but he's okay today. (laughs) (laughs) So eventually all these alleyways that were opened were covered up. Mm -hmm. And you'll see in Pioneer Square sidewalks, and there's these little purple squares or circles on the sidewalk floors and those are to let natural light into the basement area of the Seattle underground area.
0: Ah, right. Okay. So
1: you'll still see some of those pieces throughout the neighborhood. Yeah.
0: Hints of that history Mm -hmm. throughout. And we are, of course, in a very historic place. I was wondering if we could turn to some of that history because as this recovery is going on, it kind of coincides with that bit of history, which is the gold rush. And that's why the city was growing so quickly and prospering was because yeah. so in eighteen eighty
1: nine the Great Fire happens. City leaders decide that they're gonna make Seattle bigger and better than what it was before and mm-hmm. they're gonna they're gonna make the land fit their needs. So they started pulling down hills, started filling in the Pioneer Square area to create more land. Right. At the time, city leaders wanted to make sure that the terminus of the railroads was here in Seattle because that was going to drive more business, it was going to bring more people, and that's what they were aiming for. Okay. And so you have all this construction happening anyway, rebuilding the city, trying to create the terminus for the railroads, having a thriving port city. You had all this work happening. And that brought in a lot of people to find jobs, (laughs) to Mm -hmm. create a new name for themselves, to get away from their past, to try to change their life for the better. In 1897, there was an economic worldwide recession. It's not a lot of money. The West had been declared closed. And um, people on the East were feeling like, you know, this is it. We're living in crowded cities. It's not the best in July 1897, it's heralded across newspapers across the country that Klondike gold is coming into Seattle. Gold can be found in the Klondike. Yeah. All you have to do is get yourself there because there are all these millionaires, these Klondike kings and queens that are arriving in Seattle rich. Mm. And you can become rich, too, if you can only get yourself to the Klondike.
2: So
0: That was the well-timed, I guess, propaganda because at the time, this recession was shutting down a lot of hope for people, and it brought hope to this area, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, tied into the U.S. identity is this idea that you can make a better life for yourself if you can work harder. If right. you can work hard, you can make a better life for yourself.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If you can harness your energy and your resources and get yourself, be present, you can make a better life for yourself and your family. Yeah. So that's very much tied into what it means to be like the, the concept and the myth of being the US citizen and being an American. It's that belief that you have control of your destiny.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that ties in very well with it as well. This concept of gold and the Klondike Gold Rush, if you can just find your way there.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the Cadillac Hotel is one of the first 10 buildings built after the Great Seattle Fire. Um, the bottom floors, is where our exhibits are, were always public space. They were restaurants, they were businesses, they were offices, public spaces. Mm-hmm. The stores were single occupancy residency hotels, so people who lived here for months or years at a time, and they worked either in the service industry, in restaurants, other hotels, or they worked in maritime, or they worked on trains. They just, this is where people who lived and worked in Seattle, this is where they slept. And so during the Klondike Gold Rush, the people who sold goods and services to the would-be Klondike kings and queens, people who were on their way up to the gold fields to make a name for themselves, to change their destiny, they lived here. So these are the shopkeepers, or the people who helped the shopkeepers.
0: (laughs) Right, okay.
1: Yeah. And it, it was just a really busy, bustling time for Seattle, Determinants to the Railroads family happened here in Seattle.
0: It did, okay. It did.
1: We still had businesses that were being built, buildings that were being built. There was still construction because it took well into the early part of the 1900s before Seattle finished its raising of the hills and building up of Pioneer Square and other areas. Hmm. So you had all this opportunity and work here in Seattle. I think I answered your question. I'm trying to remember if there was another part of it that I'm forgetting.
0: no. That's good. I had, okay. had a few follow-up questions to this because we've read a little bit some of the stories of the folks who were coming out here, often called stampeders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so who? what kind of people were coming out for the gold rush? Uh, yeah. Probably all sorts of people. Yeah, right?
1: people from all walks of life. In our exhibits, there is one particular aspect of them which asks you to follow the story of one Klondike Stampeder.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: These five individuals represent a range of stories of why people went on the Klondike Gold Rush. Some of them were were drawn for the chance of gaining wealth and supporting their families.
2: Sure.
1: Some of them were drawn because of a sense of adventure. Mm. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Some of them were, were here because they were looking for freedom. Another one was just trying to find another life and realized that the Klondike was not going to be, they weren't going to make it as a gold miner. They weren't going to be able to get wealth. Mm-hmm. So they relied on the skills that they had prior to going on the Klondike Gold Rush. Okay. And some were children who went on the Klondike Gold Rush and they were follow, or they were taken by their parents. So imagine what it was like to be a child trying to go on this really harsh terrain and go up these hills to go up this trail
2: mm-hmm.
1: carrying a year's worth of supplies with you.
2: Yeah. yeah. So,
1: for as many people who went up, there are as many reasons why people went up.
0: So, you were talking about a, a year's worth of supplies, and I think a lot of the stories related to that are particularly <laughs> crazy and notable because people would kind of get outfitted with a ton of supplies. Right. Is that, is that literally what they brought with them? <laughs> like a full ton of, of stuff? Yeah. For a year.
1: Pretty much. So Seattle benefited from from an awesome marketing campaign. Yeah. They employed social media techniques before we even had a term for social media techniques. <laughs> there was a PR person by the name of Rastus Brainerd who harnessed the energy of everyone living in Seattle because most people weren't born here in Seattle. They mm-hmm. came from other places. So they had he had them write letters to friends and family saying if you're going on the Klondike Gold Rush. You have to come through Seattle mm-hmm. to come get your supplies, to come get information, to get transportation up to the gold fields. And there was a lot of misinformation out there. Like people thought that if you got on the boat, you would land in the gold fields, but that wasn't the case. If you got off the boat from Seattle, you were in Alaska.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: and you still had to climb to the Yukon territory of Canada. And right on the border between the between the US territory of Alaska and Canada, there were mounties. And the Maltese didn't want to let anybody, any greenhorns, into their land without a year's worth of supplies because they were not going to be responsible for saving people or rescuing people or preventing theft from people who didn't have enough supplies or were taken from other people. So yeah. they said, if you're going to come into the Canadian country, you have to bring a year's worth of supplies so you can be sustainable and self-reliant.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: So Seattle said, if you're going to go, we have the shopping list. <laughs> <laughs> We have the information you need. Mm -hmm. You can meet up with other Stampeders and join forces with them. We have access to the transportation that you'll need to get up there. So people did come. It's estimated that 100,000 people went up. 78,000 of them came through Seattle. And the folks who did make it rich, strike gold, so to speak, they weren't generally miners only 50 people of the 100,000 people who ventured off for the Klondike Gold Rush made any amount of wealth and kept it for any amount of time.
0: So really a very tiny fraction.
1: Tiny fraction. Struck it rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The people who did really well were the people who mined miners, mm. whether through supplies or if you were in, in Canada and in the Alaska area, you took advantage of them.
2: Mm. So
1: these, there are stories of people... Be, of people selling things like Klondike bicycles. Like, you can make it up the hills in Canada by buying this bicycle with skis huh. on it. Okay. Or you can buy a Klondike canary, and the bird will tell you where there's gold. Or <laughs> just or Klondike glasses. You put on these spectacles, and you're going to be able to see the flints of gold easier. Yeah. Things that just...
0: Crazy ideas. Crazy ideas. Charlatans, yeah. so to speak. Wow. Yeah. yeah.
1: Crazy stories. Profiting
0: off people's imagination and, and hope, I guess.
1: In the exactly. Case. Yeah.
0: So um, how much did this this ton cost?
1: Oh, um, in, in today's dollars, we're talking about twenty to $25,000. Okay. That's how much you would need to venture off with. Wow. Yeah. Economic recession. Mm-hmm. Like Who today has $20,000, $25,000 sitting in their bank account who could go off on this adventure? So we have all these stories of people who borrow money yeah. from banks or businesses or whatever, but a lot of stories are communities of people, families getting together to harness the resources to make sure that one of them has enough to make it up to the gold rush to change all of their fortunes. At the time, the newspapers were saying that as long as you can make yourself, get yourself up to the Klondike Goldfields, all you have to do is shake some bushes, kick around some dirt, mm-hmm. and you'll find some gold. And you know, it, it is relatively easy gold to find in the Klondike Gold Rush at the time, compared to what was happening at the California Gold Rush in the mid 1800s. Yeah. That was hard gold to get out of the dirt. But this was a lot easier.
2: Relatively it wasn't, speaking.
1: Relatively yeah. speaking. It wasn't as easy as shaking a bush or kicking around some dirt.
0: Sure. But
1: people had that thought. So you had communities. That was the marketing
0: spin, was, sort of. It was the myth. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Um so you had communities of people investing in one person to find wealth. Hmm. And that didn't happen. But
0: so, But but people did actually find gold. It was maybe fifty of them, you say, struck it struck it rich, and then others kind of profited by way of this community that had sprung up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and you had several people who were up in, uh, several hundred people who were up in the Canadian gold fields for a season, and they found out that the reality of what they encountered wasn't what they expected. Sure. So they turned around and came back to Seattle and decided to start a life in Seattle.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Or they found some wealth. And the Klondike Gold Rush, they found a claim that produced some gold, so they sold it off for a profit mm-hmm. and came back to Seattle to invest in a business okay. like Nordstrom. You had some people who found enough gold to keep them going so they could start a business up in Canada.
2: Okay, yeah.
1: Same thing. And you had other people who came back as penniless as they went,
0: hmm.
1: but they came back with a wealth of stories.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah, there had to be... An- ton of stories, which we have a, a fairly short program, so we can't get into <laughs> to all of them, unfortunately. Um, visit the site because a lot of those stories are, are brought to light, yeah. either by talking to rangers or just going through the, the exhibits here. So w- what I did want to ask you about is why why go on such a hazardous type of journey? It's obviously... By boat, maybe a little safer, but there was a land route as well that was really treacherous.
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, to answer your first question, why embark on it on such a hazardous journey? People didn't realize, like, how hard the journey was.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. You know, people heard that um, a boat full of people came back with two tons of gold in 1897. And they heard that all you had to do is get up to the Klondike Gold Rush, take a boat, get there. Goal. Yeah. But that wasn't the case. You had to go up the Chilkoot Trail, which was an icy staircase of a mountain. Mm hmm. And carry a ton of supplies with you, because that's where the border is, the Canadian-U.S. border at the time. And
0: they weren't letting you through without that. they weren't those letting those provisions.
1: You, right. They weren't letting you through. So you, you had two choices. You could go up the Chilkoot Trail, which is an icy staircase climbing a mountain with a ton of goods, mm-hmm. a year's worth of supplies. Or you could take the White Horse Trail to the other side of the Canadian border with that was, I mean, it sounds pleasant white horse trail, but it really was <laughs> sticky marsh. There were more dead horses on the trail than there were anything else. Yeah. The smell, the sight, the grotesqueness of it all. It wasn't easy either way you went. But people took on those challenges because there was no work. There was no food. There, there was no opportunity for a chance of a better life that many people felt. And when you heard that newspapers and stories and people talking about you can take destiny into your own hands, you can change your life for a better one and support your family, right. just by going on the Klondike Gold Rush. Who wouldn't take that opportunity? It was a hope and it was a way out and it was an opportunity. Yeah. Now Seattle really benefited from this specific moment in time that really only lasted two years. The Klondike gold rush only lasted two years, and Seattle has been reaping the benefits from that ever since. It put Seattle on the map because it brought in so many new people, and it brought in so much wealth with people buying their goods here in Seattle. Right. It brought in new thought, new life. It brought in investment in infrastructure and transportation. And Seattle becomes an anchor for the Pacific Northwest during this time culturally, economically, politically. And so it's just have blossomed ever since then. And with now and in the 2000s, 2018, we've been enjoying another sort of gold rush. We've been enjoying a boom where we see very similar things, a huge influx of people, investment in the city in terms of construction right. and infrastructure, businesses. And this time it's a tech boom as opposed to a gold rush boom. Mm-hmm.
0: But
1: we're seeing patterns happen again.
2: See it at all.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to see those those surges and the way people's imaginations are captured mm-hmm. by the hope of new eras. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: And our building, the Cadillac Hotel. I mean, it was a site of where people who serviced the Stampeders. It's seen resurgence as well. It was built after the Great Fire had thriving businesses, had a vibrant community living in the upstairs portion. Yeah. And then it went into some decline in the 1970s, but with after the Squally earthquake in 2001, in which it was the poster child for the devastation of the earthquake in this area.
0: This building in particular was?
1: This yeah. building in particular. Yeah. It was slated to become a garage, a parking garage. Uh-huh. And so historic preservationists and city community members decided they didn't want another historic hotel being demolished for a parking lot. So they saved the building and we were looking for a permanent home. That's how we came into this space. So you had a building that was built after the Great Fire that serviced the Klondike Gold Rush that went into a little bit of a decline, Mm -hmm. was about to be demolished and reborn into our home here for the National Park Service in Seattle. Very cool. So... Another cyclical thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for you personally, what feelings come up for you when you think of the, the Gold Rush National Historic Park?
1: Yeah. You know, there's a lot of opportunity, mm-hmm. and that is a theme that carries through the entire story. Of the beginning, the middle, the end, it's all about opportunity. Right. And for me, as the chief of interpretation... I see the opportunity for us to delve into other stories. What was the impact for Native American communities here in Seattle, in Skagway, and on the gold fields Mm -hmm. because of the gold rush? We don't really talk about that. We have a lot of resources that talk about the Euro-American experience of going on the gold rush. Sure. But people all around the world came to Seattle and embarked on this story, on this adventure but we don't have a lot of their stories. Mm. So there's opportunity to tell those stories, to find them and share them. I find that there's lots of opportunities because Seattle built itself as the gateway to the gold fields. Well, Seattle is also the gateway to other national park sites and open recreation areas and other public histories. How can we serve as that gateway for today's communities? Mm. So nothing but opportunity. And I'm excited to keep going on it.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. exciting times for the, the Park Service, I think. A, yeah. lot of, a lot of hope and a lot of opportunities. The stories that are told here in Seattle has a, a lot of modern-day implications and cultural relevance as well. So speaking to the National Park Service as a whole, sure. why is the National Park System important to you?
1: I think that's the unique thing about National Park Service sites. It's like it takes a lot and there's a lot of hurdles to become part of the agency.
2: Right.
1: Each site has to preserve a unique aspect of our history or a cool natural resource that's only found within this area. Mm-hmm. And then the stories have to pertain to what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be part of the United States?
2: Right.
1: And every single different site within the service helps define and tell that story. We are a whole nation because of all of these histories that come before us and all of the people who have lived experiences before us. Mm -hmm. And we can learn from them, like the really triumphant stories. And we can also learn from the stories that make us not so proud.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to get a cross-section across all those Wide swath, <laughs> the variety that is America.
1: Yeah. For me, the National Park Service is an agency, an organization, a cultural institution that helps define what it is to be an American. Right. What does it mean? Who are we? Where have we come from? And more importantly, where are we going? Mm-hmm. What's important to us today? What stories are we sharing? What resources are we protecting? What are we giving our children? as defining who they are Mm -hmm. and where they come from. How is that gonna shape our future? And what are we showing is important? And I think that that's what the National Park Service does. It shares those stories. It shares what's important to us. It shares our lessons that we can learn from and hope to never repeat. And it keeps us striving to be better.
0: What does it mean to be an American? The answers are just as varied as our backgrounds. When my wife Sarah and I began this podcast, I don't think we knew exactly what this show would become. We've discovered each park has a story to tell, and we're blown away again and again by the new things we get to share with you. We want to talk about the American tale from a number of diverse perspectives and draw parallels as to why the over 400 National Park and Historic Sites are still relevant today. It's important for us to preserve these places so we can figure out where we're headed as a nation in the future. So that we can strive, as Ranger Julie says, to be better. And on that note, we want to remind our American listeners to register to vote. Our national parks are formed and protected via the senators and representatives voted into office. Your vote matters, and registration deadlines are fast approaching. Bring a family member, bring a friend. Even if you think your vote doesn't matter, it's only when all of us vote that the nation changes for the greater good. You can find information about voter registration in your state at vote.gov that's vote.gov a link is also posted in our show notes and to help others find this show we really appreciate your vote of confidence via a five star rating on your podcast provider of choice coming up in episode 24 of podcasts with park rangers we explore the internment of japanese americans from bainbridge island during World War II, and why the government imprisoned over 120,000 U.S. citizens and residents after the attack at Pearl Harbor. Even though we interview park rangers, we are not affiliated with the National Park Service, and any views expressed are not necessarily those of the Park Service. We're just fans of the National Parks, like you.